You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. If you will, take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 today. 1 Peter chapter 5 today, and I just want to encourage you today that uh, those two words, by faith, that's still the way we have to walk. And I've been thinking about as it relates to our brethren in Afghanistan or Haiti or other places that are a bit, to say the least, beleaguered and challenged and on the run even this morning or this evening, uh, depending on their time zone. Um, But I think sometimes the, the more we have creature comforts and maybe social apparatus to support us, uh, we forget that as Western believers, and we have to walk by faith. And I think one of the things that the last couple of years God's been working on me in is to learn to do that anew and afresh, and I hope that uh, you'll do so today and this week, and uh, we will not regret whatever step we take that is one built upon faith. First Peter chapter 5 today, in just a moment, we'll read together. But before we do that, just wanted to give you a heads up of where we're going with our sermon series. Uh, First of all, tonight we're starting a new series on marriage called The Vow, and we're looking at six marital commitments of every healthy marriage. Uh, So I invite you uh, for that this evening at 530. If you're able to do so, we'd be honored to have you as we begin that new series. And uh, then uh, next week in the morning, next Sunday morning, we're starting a new series called Bite Size Spirituality. And uh, I'll be honest with you, the subject matter we're going to cover, I struggled to boil it down to just six weeks. Um, in fact, in two weeks, I'll be preaching on God, and I tried to put that into one sermon. That was, that was a challenge for me, I'll be honest with you, um, who is infinite. But you'll see there on the slide, we're talking specifically about the tensions between uh, opposites in the spiritual realm. And so next week, we'll be talking about Satan, and uh, I don't know if you ever heard a sermon on Satan. I've never preached one on Satan that I know of, but that's been really helpful to me to study on our enemy and God's perspective on him and uh, what he's doing through him even. Uh, We'll also be talking about God, as I mentioned, so kind of those two opposites, uh, angels and demons. We'll be talking about those who are faithful angels and those who are fallen angels, uh, heaven and hell. Uh, Maybe it's been a while since you've heard a sermon on uh, hell. Uh, We'll be studying on that in a few weeks, Uh, and then we'll end with the judgment seat of Christ, which is where believers are moving, and the great white throne judgment. And so we'll have a couple of breaks in that with some other things going on in our church schedule, but the next uh, series we'll be doing next Sunday will be this bite-sized spirituality, and specifically we'll begin with next Sunday the Bible perspective on Satan, uh, our enemy, and so I invite you back for that at 1030 uh, in the morning. All right, First Peter chapter 5 today, you may remain seated, but let's look at you at verse number 8. The Bible says this, be sober. We ended last time in verse 7. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom, which I find interesting, we're starting with Satan next week as we finish up this series today. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him, this God of all grace, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanius, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting 
and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Verse 14, greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so we want to finish up our series today looking at how we can have soft skills of endurance as the exiles of Jesus on this earth and in this present world by looking at this enduring preparation. The key word today is preparation. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for these last few months uh, of our summer season, uh, Lord, that we've been able to spend in this precious book of 1 Peter. And uh, Lord, thank you that we have the narrative sections that help color and add uh, texture and uh, detail, Lord, to these principles that Peter shares here on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for this apostle and all of his mistakes and blunders and yet his honesty, his willingness to change and grow, and to see you use him in a mighty way, not just in days of old, but through this summer here in our church. We thank you for that. I pray, Father, as we now enter this final study in this book, that you would convince us that, Lord, much of our issue and much of our challenge is we are ill-prepared, where you have given us clearly what we need to do and be to be prepared. And I pray that you would help us to be encouraged and challenged today Lord, to be prepared to give an answer, as Peter says back in chapter 3, of the hope that lies within us, and to have a prepared heart that you can use and you can bless. Bless this study. Be honored in it, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Um, I don't know if you're a coffee drinker or not. You probably know that I am. You've caught in that vibe. But uh, someone the other day was talking about this question. I'd like you to think about this for a minute today. Um, Do you wake up? I'm sorry, do you drink coffee to wake up? Are you in category one? Or, like yours truly, do you wake up to drink coffee? Which, which of those are you? Um, and I, I, I mean, I think if I didn't drink coffee, I might struggle to wake up. But I literally wake up. Heidi will tell you, religiously, the coffee maker is ready. Um, you know, I'd rather leave the front door unlocked than not have the coffee maker primed and ready uh, for the next morning because probably that's less dangerous maybe for the family. Uh, but anyway, the other day I saw, this may not, you may not think this is funny, I think this is hilarious. So someone was trying to validate drinking coffee, they said the di- dinosaurs didn't drink coffee, and we all know how that turned out, right? <laughs> so, so we need to prepare ourselves. Um, in all seriousness today, as we think about preparation in our relationship with God today, I would submit to you lovingly and yet firmly today that the lack of tender unction and poise in our day by the average believer is because, listen to me, we are winging it in one of the most crucial moments in church history. We're just flying, as my dad always would say, flying by the seat of our pants. We're just winging it when we're in a war. And I want to just challenge you today, much of the defeat, much of the the angst and the anxiety in our lives is not all of it, but much of it is the result of being ill-prepared for the challenges we face as the exiles of Jesus Christ. This world is not our home. And when we are ill-prepared, the tone or disposition we tend to have is one of harshness. Uh, Think about the last time you didn't have your act together. You you showed up at work late, or you forgot to do something, and so you're rushing. Some of you, you know, church starts at 1030, and you think if you go fast enough, if you leave at 1045 from your house, you can somehow get here on time. And you just... You, the feeling of being rushed or ill-prepared. Do you tend to have more graciousness toward people around you? Oh, good to see you today. You know, no, you're, get out of my way. You know, you're in a hurry. Ill-prepared people tend uh, to not be as tender. 
And so these soft skills we're talking about uh, need to always be uh, prefaced by preparation. Winston Churchill was once quoted as saying this, he who fails to plan is planning to fail. And much of the failures that I see in my own life, and I think if you'll give me permission today, that I see in your life and family and marriage, etc., is not because of willfulness or recklessness, it's just a lack of preparation. And so I hope today your heart will be open to what God has for you on this front of being prepared in any given area that you're called to be a believer. So the question is this, in a day of underprepared faith and practice, how do we allow God to soften our hearts and lives with a renewed commitment to holy, sacred preparation? Let's talk about today two profiles of preparation that Peter admonishes these believers, and I think through the Lord's preservation of his word today, challenges us to also have preparation. What does it look like? Number one, let's spend a few minutes, first of all, talking about the idea of vigilance. So if you would say to me today, pastor, or if we could talk to Peter, or more importantly, God himself, and we would say, what does a person who is prepared, what do they look like? What, what vibe, what profile do they have? The first thing we see Peter giving us here is a prepared believer is vigilant. Eyes open, heart open, mind open, not slumbering, very vigilant. Now, does that bring to mind any stories of our dear author, Peter? Um, I think Peter here, probably of all those in Scripture, was most qualified to speak to this because of the lessons that he had learned uh, the hard way. Remember the night of Jesus' betrayal as everything is set in motion and uh, Satan, as we mentioned, is using Um, Judas, ultimately God is using Judas in his plan. And with the world and everything hanging in the balance, what does Peter do? He falls asleep. And Jesus comes to him. And can you think that maybe these thoughts and memories crowded into Peter's mind as he wrote these words of being vigilant? In Mark chapter 14, verse 38, Jesus comes to him, the slumbering Peter, and says, Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter temptation. The spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is is weak. Watch ye and pray. And so Peter here desires better for us. He desired better for these, uh, this audience that would read this letter. And, and, and so I think it's, it's amazing to me that God uses this man of all men to teach us and remind us to be vigilant. And here's what I catch us doing. I think we think we're confident in God and we kind of just kick back. Well, you know, the rapture's coming and Jesus is coming back and God's in control. And sometimes what we think is confidence in God is actually, listen to me, carelessness. We are to occupy until he comes. We're to be salt and light. We're to be vigilant. And so often what we may feel is confidence in God is actually an abdication of the vigilance that we must all uh, personify. All right, let's talk about a couple of areas here in the text as it relates to vigilance. Number one, jot this down there in your notes, not on the slide, but there in your bulletin today. Take heart in the discernment of godly vigilance. Let discernment fuel and sustain your sense of vigilance. And as I mentioned, next week we will talk more about Satan, and so we'll not spend a lot of time in verse 8 today, but we need discernment to sense when he is working. Um, I remember when we were uh, on staff in Michigan as youth pastor and youth pastor's wife, Heidi and I were working on, this was pre the boys, and we had a, an activity, I don't know if this sounds crazy to you, but it was it was actually a treasure hunt, and I literally went out to a remote train track and buried a treasure next to it. This is the young, naive youth pastor. Some may have driven by and thought, what body is he burying or whatever. 
So I'm out burying treasure, and then we had these clues the teens would follow sequentially to find this hidden treasure. And my wife, who always usually this was her role, she would take care of food with some of the other ladies helping her. We were running probably at the time about 100 to 120 teenagers. And so it was a, a pretty good uh, preparation to make that happen on a given week. She was teaching, and I had other roles in the school and things there. But anyway, she got in an accident while picking up the pizza. And I remember uh, someone pulled out in front of her, destroyed the car. But what was interesting was, besides the pain and suffering, was she had a car full of pizza that when you get hit with a bunch of pizza, when I saw her, I thought she was bleeding profusely all over. It was just, you know, pizza sauce and pepperoni and stuff. Just kind of, I remember when she first walked into the youth room and just, what happened to you? But one of the things I remember with her after the fact was, have you ever been in an accident and then for a while you're really jumpy? Like where I didn't, literally did not want to drive with her in the, because I thought I wasn't going to live if somebody pulled out in front or even someone slowed down. She was very on edge. Have you ever been there? Where, where is that in our day, brethren, as it relates to the spiritual forces at work trying to rend and destroy everything that's good and holy and godly? Where's the, where's the vigilance? Uh, we have been lulled to sleep in areas that often set us up for spiritual defeat. And so Peter here is saying, listen, this is real. Uh, we need to have discernment to see when it is coming. All right, two things quickly underneath of that. First, notice there, is, there needs to be respectful uh, discernment. The word that's used there in verse 8, he says, first of all, be sober. Uh, there's a, a respect, a healthy respect of an enemy that is dangerous, an enemy that is powerful, an enemy that's much smarter and able uh, than we are. We also will study about the demons in a few weeks as well. He also has other resources at his disposal that we do not have. And so a healthy, cautious, respectful discernment uh, of our enemy. He is formidable. We have no reason. We should never joke about him. We should never ignore him. We should never underestimate his ability. Peter says we are to be sober. Our thoughts about him need to be under control. Number two, notice in verse number eight, he says not only to be sober, but number two, to be vigilant. Number two, jot this down, identifying discernment. So we're respectful with our discernment. Number two, we are identifying. And by that, I mean we're looking for where he is working. Uh, we see his approach. We see his mode of operation. We, we seek to be ready to stand against where he is coming against us. And so our enemy is not just a powerful one. He's also a subtle one. In fact, the devil, Satan, is known almost more than anything else for his subtlety. He, did, he, he presents himself as an angel of light. He looks good, and what he says sounds good and makes sense, and yet uh, he is one we must identify. 1 John 2 is very clear. Listen to me. Without the Word of God and the Spirit of God, he would deceive every one of us in this room. We would buy what he said. We would espouse it. We would proclaim it from the, 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 the housetops. We would identify with him and think we were in good company. We would think we were going in a good direction. And so we need God's help to identify with discernment uh, where he is attacking. And so the better we know God's word, the keener are our spiritual senses. We are to try the spirits and we are to use God's resources uh, to do so. Um, the other day I was reading a, an excerpt from a book. Uh, the title of the book is Faith for Exiles and talking about the idea of the relationship between the believer and this fallen world. Listen to these words. 
The author said this, the data indicates that an hour a week in church, or more likely an hour or so every few weeks, when a Christian shows up for church, listen to this, that hour is simply not sufficient, is not a sufficient amount of weight to tone a heart bloated with hundreds of hours of content from digital Babylon, referencing digital worldly culture. And I think sometimes we think we come to church for an hour and then I'm good till next Sunday. Do you know how many hours of vulnerability there are between our gatherings? How many moments when, when the enemies and those that want to side uh, step us and move us away from God's will, how much they're working? We need this kind of discernment. And what is the ultimate manifestation of a hard heart? Here it is. Listen to this. This is the worst or the most extreme version of a hard heart. It's when we have a hardness we don't even know we have. That's the hardest heart. We're not just hardened toward God. We're deceived into thinking we are totally okay. And so may we allow God to help us and protect us from that. All right, number two, verse nine. I love now he gives us something to do with this vigilance. Notice now he says in verse 9, Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Number two, jot this down. Take heart in the resistance of godly vigilance. Take heart in the discernment. Number two, take heart in the resistance. I don't know if you're a baseball fan or you played baseball or t-ball. We have several of our young men in the church who do and some of our older guys who used to. Um, we've joked about having a church softball team, you know, and different things. We'd have to find a field or something to use, but sometimes those unravel, you know, as we all just get mad at each other. You know, that tends to be a part of church softball if we're not careful. But in baseball, there is, um, well, I'd ask you this. What, when someone strikes out, what letter is used to symbolize that strikeout? Sometimes you'll see a, uh, a fan drape it over a balcony at the, the ballpark. What, what's the letter? K, right? I don't know if you ever noticed, but there are, when you look at the lineup of a bunch of strikeouts, if a pitcher has, let's say, 12 or 10, some of the Ks are forward and some of the Ks are backwards. And for those who are a part of baseball, uh, you would know this, but for the rest of us, just a reminder, a backwards K represents a called strikeout. So if you see it backwards, that means the guy was caught looking. The ball that went by him was called a strike and he didn't even swing. A forward strike, a forward K means he went down swinging. Whether it was actually a ball or a strike or not, strike three was called because he swung and missed. Here's the thought today of bringing that into our realm of study this morning. I think a lot of us, we're going down without swinging in areas. We're giving ground without even putting up a fight. Are you fighting for your marriage? Are you fighting for your kids? Are you fighting for God? Are you fighting for this church? And you know what I mean by that, not a militarized, um, we're talking into the tender manifestation of this, but too many of us are just standing without swinging and the devil is undercutting and deceiving and misleading and, and guiding others away from God and we're not resisting. You and I cannot claim to care about the persons and the places where Satan is attacking if we're not willing to at least put up a fight. And as a pastor, that's my job. I can't make decisions for you, neither can you for me, but my job is to at least swing, at least fight, at least resist. Are we each doing that with this preparation until God calls, calls us home? All right, a couple things about this resistance, because to me that's overwhelming to think about. Resisting the devil, that, that seems very 
kind of out of touch with where I live and how do I handle that? Well, notice what he says in verse 9, whom resists steadfast, here these words are key, in the faith. Number one, it is to be faith-filled resistance. Our resistance toward forces at work against God, we must be filled with faith. We are not to surrender, but we are to resist through prayer, through God's word. I in and of myself can't stand against the devil, but I have a God who can And if my faith is in Him, then I can go to bat, if you will. I can swing and even risk swinging and missing for the glory and honor of God. He is able to defeat this foe. And we'll talk about it with Satan. But can I just remind you, Satan and God are not opposites but equals. The devil is still God's devil. He uses him. He works through him. He's still in charge. And so we have that God. He is our God. He's greater. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so our faith must be in God. And if our faith is in God, we can stand against the devil. 1 John 5, 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world. What is it? Even our faith. Our faith in God. I don't know if you've read any of the Chronicles of Narnia books. I grew up reading them, and uh, still, now and then, I've read excerpts. I haven't read them in, in several years, but one of C.S. Lewis's books is called The Last Battle. And there's a lot of allegory in it that if you don't understand it, you kind of just, this is a weird story, but there's a lot of spiritual truth that's woven in, and um, encourage you at some point to revisit it with your kids. I think they're uh, a provable material to use at certain stages of their development. But in the last battle, there's an ape named Shift who begins to take all the earthly glory for himself. He enlists the assistance of a tired old donkey named Puzzle. So Shift is trying to take over the world. He employs uh, his partner, Puzzle. Having come across an old lion skin, the ape sews it, this lion skin, into a cumbersome costume and parades the donkey around in it. And C.S. Lewis gives this description of this little excerpt of the story. The skin was very heavy for him to lift, but in the end, with a lot of pulling and pushing and puffing and blowing, he got it onto the donkey. A good deal of Puzzle's gray nose and face could still be seen through the open mouth of the lion's head. No one who had ever seen a real lion would have, taken it, uh, would have been taken in for even a moment. But if someone who had never seen a lion looked at Puzzle in his lion skin, he just might mistake him for a lion if he didn't come too close if the light was not so good, and if Puzzle did not let out a bray and did not make any noise with his hooves. And and so it kind of is using this analogy, and Aslan, the true lion in the story, is a picture of whom? Jesus, right? We we know that if you're familiar with the story. And C.S. Lewis makes this conclusion, which I think very is fascinating to me as I look at the enemy we face. He said, Puzzle and Schiff tried to pull off the impossible, and so it is with Satan, He is a cheap imitation of the great lion. So do not be overcome by the fact that he prowls around like a roaring lion. Remember his true self. He is nothing more than a stubborn and a rebellious donkey living out his rebellion against God. Therefore, take heart. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Do not be overcome by this imitation ruler. The great lion Jesus demands all your allegiance. The devil is a powerful enemy, but I'm telling you, he's a pretender. We know who the real line is. We know who God is. We know he is our God. And so our faith in God calls us to resist. I think a lot of us talk about we believe God. 
Here's my challenge to you. If your faith of God could only be evidence, James says works are the evidence of authentic faith, how, if only resistance could quantify your faith, how much faith is seen in your life? How much are you standing against evil? How much are you standing against the enemy? God calls us, Peter calls us to just that mission. All right, then the end of verse 9, he goes on to say, I love this, how apropos in this setting our world is going through right now, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Number two, shared resistance. So our resistance is faith-filled. Number two, it is one that is shared. Um, One of the things that I have noticed, maybe as a pastor and as a a father, as a husband, just a Christian in different settings, do you ever get this vibe in your heart where you start thinking, I'm the only one that's suffering what I'm suffering? I'm the only one that's experiencing the resistance or the pushback in some given area? And I think one of of Satan's most used devices is to discourage us with the thought that our suffering is unique and what we're going through is only true of us. And especially as we go through the fires of affliction, when I didn't earn this, I don't deserve this, and we're navigating the challenges of life and living as an exile of Jesus Christ, he tries to convince us of this false narrative. Peter here reminds us that we're not the only one. The same sufferings that we are experiencing are being experienced by other Christians, brothers and sisters, not just here, but around the world. And I'm sure you've tracked the news, even if you weren't trying to, of our our brethren, uh, the Afghani Christians, right? And what they're navigating today. One of the pictures that seared in my mind that I didn't get on our our slide deck today is of a father and a daughter. He's carrying the daughter, and you can tell they're running for their lives, and they're both just bawling their eyes out. Not just the little girl, the dad is as well. They are scared beyond belief. Um, And there are brethren right now, currently, as they close out another Sunday, whether they were able to gather or not, are suffering mightily for the cause of Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful we're not in this alone? I'm sure they are, to know we're hopefully praying for them, and we're in church this morning and maybe publicly doing what they cannot. We're in this together. And I love that about as we face the enemy, we don't just resist him alone, we resist him together. Um, And one of the stories that came out of um, Afghanistan this last week, I don't know if you saw this or not, is the Taliban is going house to house, and they ask to see the phone of every person in that house. The first thing they check is is a Bible app on that phone, or is the Bible downloaded on that phone? And if it is, they're executed on the spot. That's the kind of stuff our brethren are facing. And we can't say no to our flesh. We can't say no to the influences going on in our life. We need to stand, and we need to stand together. Jude 3 in verse 3 says this at the end of the verse, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. One of the questions I would ask you, and it has been tremendously encouraging to see so many of you sign up for small groups and many new folks, and man, I can't wait for next, this Wednesday and next Sunday. But one of the questions I would ask you, and maybe I'm asking this to the Christian community at large, not just our church, how are we ever going to pull together if we have our own Afghan moment where we're on the run and we literally are facing death for our faith if we can't build together right now? We're talking about preparation. I, I think you know this. I've talked with several who are now with the Lord that have been a part of our church in years gone by. I remember specifically some of the men who are now with the Lord that God has taken from our ranks in recent years and us talking about how every day is preparing us for that crisis moment. 
that crisis moment, and, and hopefully when we get to that moment, we're together with some others, that we've built that community, and now we can enter into that trial, that suffering together. That's the spirit of Peter here. We stand not just alone against the devil, we stand with God, and we stand with those God has handpicked for our lives to do this life together. And so the faith wants delivered to the saints. It's ours to, to steward. Satan longs in every generation to snuff it out. The question is, will we faithfully prepare to resist that agenda? Now, when you go to the end of verse 9, just stop for a moment before we get into verse 10. Can you imagine Peter thinking about, if I had lived out those verses I just wrote, verse 8 and 9, the things he would not have done. He would not have denied the Lord. He would not, and again, I know we're talking in the hypothetical here, but there are things that if he had practiced these principles... Instead of slumbering and stumbling, he would have stayed faithful. And the question I would ask you today before we move to our second point is, what pending failures are represented in this room that could be prevented if we would be vigilant? What moral failure, what relational brokenness, what, what spiritual stumbling could you and I head off if we would practice this discipline of vigilance? May God help us to prepare for his return with greater vigilance. All right, then verse 10. Let's go there, if you will, and let's look at quickly the second aspect or profile of the prepared believer who is enduring as an exile of Jesus Christ. Verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Number two, preparation that is gracious. Um, one of the things I find very fascinating in Scripture is how God always provides balancing principles. Um, one of the things I've noticed is some of us who are prone toward hypervigilance, probably we need the second half of this study. And those of us that are a little more assume the best about everybody and we're all kind and we all love each other and everybody should get an award like every grandma in the room believes, that, that group needed to hear what we just studied, what we just talked about. So it's both. And sometimes our vigilance is not as gracious as it should be, and we isolate instead of leaning into the relationships that God has given us. So I love that Peter ends in this way. So Peter here closes in a positive note, reminding his believers, his readers, that God is in control. And no matter how difficult the trial may become, they have access to the God of all grace. Grace not just to receive, but grace to share with those around them. All right, let's talk about two things as it relates to preparation that is gracious. Number one, take heart in the purpose, take heart in the purpose of godly grace. Take heart in the purpose of godly grace. Um, the Kleins have a new baby and several others of you have younger children and you've been through that phase we have as well. And uh, the other day somebody sent me a video clip of a bunch of crying babies. You ever had a baby, you just cannot get the baby, you don't want to say shut up, but by the end you want to say it, you know what I mean? I think I've told you about, we had a dad in our church who was very mild-mannered, or a contact with a guy who he was holding a baby late night, couldn't get the baby to go to sleep, and the wife walked out right as he kicked the bottom of a chair. He's got, he didn't do anything to the baby, but he just got so frustrated, he just kicked the chair. He's just like, this baby will not be quiet. But anyway, the other day someone shared a video clip of a bunch of babies crying, and then they took, you know what I mean by American cheese? Did you see this clip? That, that when a baby's crying, if you, take a, if you open a, a, Ameri a piece of American cheese and you just slap it on their forehead, they stop crying. It is, 
It is absolutely hilarious. I don't know if it works with your baby, but I'm telling you, it worked with these babies. And they literally, they just start kind of rolling, trying to see it, you know, and it's hilarious. They go from just bawling their eyes out to this curious, so if that helps you, Kleins especially, you know, stock up on American cheese. But just kind of this slap upside the head, it just stopped them. You know, for a lot of us, I think as it relates to our pain, one of the struggles is not the pain as much as it is, it's senseless. Why me? Why now? Why for so long? Why all of these consequences in my life? And the beauty of God's grace is not only that it helps us through the trial, listen to me, it reminds us that God has a purpose in it. Uh, Brother Heath last Sunday night shared, and I'm sure many of you were here and God used that, and many of you have watched that since then. There is a purpose. I don't know that he presented that purpose. I don't know that he and I could put our heads together or all of us and figure out what that purpose is. But isn't it beautiful that we know God does have a purpose? He doesn't waste pain. And I think often in trials, the reason our hearts get hard is because we begin to believe the lie. This is senseless. This is purposeless. And Peter here in these last few verses reminds us that there is a purpose, not just in the trial, but in the grace that God gives. True victory in persecution and trial is to see God behind the scenes, working out his wonderful purpose, believing that he has an agenda in mind. All right, two things about that. Number one, there is a developing purpose. God is using the trials and the grace that he gives to develop us. He's using the suffering to educate us and to mold our Christian character. He's training us for reigning, as one commentator said. He's trying to get us to the next level in our walk with God so that we can reign with Him someday. This training process of our trials. Quickly notice the words that he uses in verse 10. He says, we'll come back to the beginning of the verse in just a moment. After that ye have suffered a while, make you. Notice these words. First he uses the word perfect. This has the idea of making us fit exercising us. It supplies elements in character that make us spiritually mature and fit. He perfects us in trials. Number two, notice he uses the word establish or establish. The idea here is that suffering makes Christians more stable, able to maintain a good confession or testimony to bear up under the pressure of that moment. Um, our character is most solidified not when things are easy, but when things are difficult. And I said this either last Sunday or the Sunday before, could it be the things happening in our country and our world right now are not the antithesis, but the means to the prayers we're praying? God, do a new work. Raise up a generation. Reach the world with the gospel. Could not that at least be possible? Could not God redeem and use all that's going on right now? So suffering stabilizes us. As I look back over the last two years of what our church and every church like ours has navigated, I think our church is stronger for it. Now, if you would say, let's hit repeat on the last two years, I'd rather not, to be honest with you. But it has strengthened us. It has strengthened you. I see it in you. It strengthened me, I pray. And so this establishing, this establishing purpose of God. Thirdly, notice he says strengthen. So it, it, it strengthens us. Persecution is intended by Satan to do what? To weaken and to wear us out, to wear us down. God, through His grace, as Paul prays at the end of 2 Corinthians, that His, his power or strength is perfected in my weakness. It actually enhances my strength. It has the opposite effect of what Satan intends. It strengthens us to endure and to persevere. Fourthly, notice he says, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle. Settle you. 
The verb here is related to the word foundation that's found in other places in Scripture. It's a, it's a grounding, it's a, a founding idea. It provides foundation to us. God wants every believer to be firmly planted in His Word and in His Son and in His Spirit, and often the tool He uses is purposeful trials and suffering. Just this thought to encourage those of you who are going through suffering today and those who all of us shortly will if we're not. There is a level of spiritual maturity that you will never reach without the following combination. Suffering from God that he allows with a tender trust and reliance upon the grace of God. And those that you see ahead of you, you've heard me say this, I'll say it again. The people you would say are a super Christian And I would look and say, man, they're way ahead of me spiritually. Here's the only difference between them and you. They've had their heart broken more than you have, and God's grace has healed it. And it's grown them. It's stretched them. It's expanded them. Be careful what you pray for, for one. But when God begins to give suffering and trial, is our first default position to say, I'm a victim? Or where's God trying to get me? What's he trying to do through me? How is he trying to expand my understanding of him, my influence in others? May we view it through that lens. Peter reminds us of these four purposes. In Romans 8, 28, and we all love to hear that verse, don't we, when we're going through a trial. I'm very careful as a counselor. Well, I'm sorry you just had this gut-wrenching situation. Well, you know Romans 8, 28. We have to be very careful with that. But the end of that verse I love, he says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to what? His purpose. And his purpose is always to grow us. His purpose is always our best in mind. The other day, a pastor friend of mine said this, the world is not falling apart, it's falling together into God's sovereign plan. It is falling together. Don't believe anything different. Don't let Satan or your own flesh convince you otherwise. All right, then go back to the beginning of verse 10. He says, but the God of all grace, notice this phrase, who hath called us unto his eternal, here's the word, glory by Christ Jesus. Number two, now is this purpose developing in nature. Number two, it is glorifying. This purpose of God in suffering is to glorify himself. He has called us to his eternal glory. If you can think of it, this analogy, I don't know if you've ever been to a landfill, you know, where people dump stuff over the edge they can't give away or sell or get anything out of. It's almost as if God takes us off the junk pile Think about that, how little we deserve to be a part of his plan and purpose. And he says, you know what, I'm going to take you, and he's going to take me, and he's going to allow us to bring him glory. Isn't that amazing? We have been called unto his eternal glory. And so whatever suffering is involved in that, the fact that I'm not on the junk pile of, of humanity, and I have been called into bringing him glory, whatever that means, I should be able to glory in that purpose. Um, I was reading the other day an account of Hugh Latimer. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He was a reformer of the 1500s. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake in Oxford, England, for their faith in October 1555. As the story goes, as the flames of this final trial rose about them, Latimer cried out, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. These were the final words of a suffering man who wanted nothing more than to die in adoration. It was enough for him to know what happened to him on that day would accomplish the purpose of God's inextinguishable and everlasting dominion. And as for Latimer, 
And as for Peter, who was crucified up, upside down as far as we know, and for us, we should count it a privilege to bring glory to God in whatever way he chooses. Now, I know that sounds really good to preach. <laughs> for us to live that is another challenge. Are we willing to live and die? Are we willing to suffer in between those two events if it brings glory to the Lord? That's the tender-hearted position that only God's grace can produce. And I love that at the end, if you will, then go to verse 11. So we, we studied on the purposes of God. He calls us to glory. And then notice this, this praise that Peter breaks out in, in verse 11 as he considers this. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so we see now in light of this, Peter burst into a doxology. He's worshiping God because of this calling, this glorifying purpose to even sufferings. What else could we say to God? than to worship Him and to give Him glory, a God who calls us into His purpose and plan. God's purpose for His grace in tough times is gaining glory. That's why He gives us His grace. A purpose, listen to me, that cannot be fully realized unless that grace passes through a tender heart. The saddest things that I, that I see, and I see it in me, don't you see it sometimes in yourself, is I tend to get hard in be victim and be whatever, defensive when things get tough, that hardness of heart bottles or hinders the grace of God in my heart. A soft heart while suffering is when God's grace can be displayed fully and when God can get a whole bunch of glory out of that. Don't, don't tamp down. Don't hinder this process that God is working in your life or shortly may be doing so. Keep a tender heart let his grace fill your heart and let it be shed abroad in your heart to those who are watching. Hard hearts are always the result of seeing no purpose in God-allowed pain. If you don't see the purpose, you're going to have a hard heart. That's just what's going to happen. But if you can at least believe there is a purpose, that tenderness can be begun, it can be sustained as you trust what God is doing. The other day I saw this picture. I don't know if this helps you. I think this is a great illustration. The author said this, sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried. You ever felt that? But in reality, you've actually been planted. Isn't that cool? It's a great analogy. It's real dark right now for some of you, and it may be this week for you. It might be me. It might be my turn to be buried, feel like I'm buried and suffocating and struggling, and there's no light of day, no clarity. But isn't it possible, even if we die this week, I hate to bring that up. Sorry, we preachers have to bring up those subjects. Aren't we planted to then be reborn? Don't you want to eventually be free of that flesh? And those struggles in this old world, don't you? That planting that seems so dark always has a purpose. Don't let your own flesh, the devil himself, or our world convince you otherwise. All right, and then lastly, if you will, to go to verse 12. And let's bring this now to application. Verse 12, I love these closing comments by Peter here, the apostle. Notice verse 12, he goes on to say, by Silvanius, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I've written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Lastly, jot this down. Take heart in the fellowship of godly grace. Take heart in the fellowship of godly grace. And it's interesting, both of our points today, both in vigilance and in graciousness, Peter brings it into community. So don't forget, you're not the only one suffering. He says that in verse 9. And then now here in verses 12 to the end, he begins to list proper names. There's fellowship that we experience as we suffer and we let God's grace be birthed and grown in our hearts and lives. It is something we do in community.
All right, two things. Number one, jot this down, affirming fellowship. This fellowship were to use God's grace to build and grow is to be fellowship that is affirming, affirming others. Uh, the man Sylvanius that is mentioned here is likely just an abrev- or is a, a uh, long version of the man Silas. Silas would have been the, the shorter name or form of this, uh, this name, who, as we know, based on other accounts in Scripture, was a faithful brother and likely the man that Peter dictated this letter to, and then uh, Sylvanius would have likely delivered this letter to these believers. But notice at the end of verse 12, he says, in testifying that this is the true grace, this is the true grace. So he talks about the God of all grace back in verse 10, and then now affirms to them that what they're standing in, the true grace of God wherein ye stand. You ever gotten in the thick of a trial and you wonder if everything you believe and claim to believe is really true? I love that Peter here just takes a moment to affirm, listen, and what this grace, this, what I just talked about, this is the real thing. This is worth living for and suffering for and even dying for. And so he affirms this is the true grace. This is the grace that is from God himself. One of the things that came out of Afghanistan this past week as well were some previous things that the believers in Afghanistan had done to prepare for this moment. I am not for a moment going to open the can of worms of all the politics and the decisions made and, um, and how those decisions have negatively impacted those in this part of the world. But one of the things that I was amazed by were I think the Afghani believers sensed that this was how it was going to play out. I don't know if they knew of the timing exactly. But they were setting their house in order. And one of the interesting stories that convicts me greatly as I read it is in early July, so this had been just a few months ago or just over a month ago, Afghan pastors and church leaders made a very difficult decision. Listen to this decision they came to. They decided to formally register their faith as Christians with the Afghan government. Um, and the, the article said, what an absurdity to register as Christians in an Islamic republic, which is maybe no longer a republic, that prohibits a person from converting to Christianity. And the article said this, against the advice of many, these Afghan church leaders felt compelled for the sake of future generations to legally declare their true faith in Christ. And they said this, what about our children and grandchildren? Someone should make the sacrifice so the next generation can openly call themselves Followers of Jesus. They went on record. Are we on record? Are we confident in our faith? They were. Does the next generation see that in us? There needs to be this affirming confidence in Jesus Christ. Uh, verse, go to the next verse, if you will. Verse 13. The church, so he's not just affirming Sylvanus and these believers who are reading, but in verse 13 he says, The church that is at Babylon, elect together with you, where Peter is, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. So in verse 13, Peter then sends this greeting from the church in Babylon. And every time I've read this, I've struggled with that because I think I knew I know where Peter was when he wrote this book of 1 Peter. And everything I can read tends to lean toward that he kind of cloaked the name Rome, with this analogy of Babylon. Um, from everything we know, Peter gave his life. He was suffering and, and would suffer as a result of what he stood for for Christ in a place called Rome. And so it's very likely that Peter here is kind of to avoid some of the words or references that might bring suffering upon these believers. Instead of mentioning Rome or Nero, he uses this analogy of Babylon. 
And you notice also he says at the end of verse 13, he includes this young man Marcus or Mark. Peter's son in the faith. And so we see Peter very connected. In the midst of suffering, he's, he's writing to some, and he's writing on behalf of others, and then he mentions his own son in the faith. He was not isolated as he suffered. He wasn't isolated or advocating isolation to these believers, having relationship, affirming uh, not just uh, these believers, but even this young man, Mark. Now, it's interesting to me that Peter, though we've talked about Nero, as we've kind of set the table for the context for the book, he never mentions Nero's name. He doesn't mention the enemy, but he does mention a lot of other names. He knew them. He had relationship with them. He had influence in their life. He was affirming them through fellowship. One of the things I've noticed as we get further into the, I think, the the last moments, the twilight moments of church history, which again could go on for hundreds of years But as we enter the last of the last days, the thing I've noticed about God's people, and I have to fight this too, we are known more for who we're against than who we're for. Like, is there a young person in your life that you say, I'm for you. I believe God can use you. Like, God can use you to be a part of this church and to raise a family and start a church or go to the mission field, whatever the thing is, or just be faithful in a church setting and in a family setting. Who are you for? That, that's the tender-hearted posture of a believer. It's not just who we're against, though we have to stand, as we just said, against the devil and those he's using, but who are we for? Peter was for some people, and he mentions that here. And I think we gather to remind you, hey, I'm for you. I believe in you. I want God to use you. I think God can use you. Is that the vibe you're giving off as a, an exile of Jesus Christ? Somebody used this analogy or this picture with corporate worship. I love this. An author said this, corporate worship, what, we've, what we're doing today, is designed to make you celebrate the soaking rain of God's grace that pours down on you every day. So we gather to just celebrate and remind you, man, God's grace is new and fresh, His mercies every morning, but we gather just to remind each other of that, to affirm that, hey, God's grace is working and God's grace is available, uh, would you celebrate it with me? And so that's the affirming part that we must never abdicate or retreat from. All right, then let's end in verse 14. This is a hard verse, okay? And we're not going to practice it in just a minute, so don't get nervous today, okay? (laughs) But he says this, Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all there in Christ Jesus. Amen. Lastly, jot this down, affectionate fellowship. So it's affirming. Number two, it is affectionate. And you and I today cannot rightly endure under the weight of being exiles unless we love on our fellow exiles. I'm not talking about being loved on. I'm talking about loving on. One of the most therapeutic things that I can do to keep my heart soft when I'm going through a difficult time is to love on someone else, to bless them, to encourage them. It keeps my heart tender. It floods my soul with the grace of God as I strive to please him in that situation. Um, Over and over, we see in the New Testament the reference to this kiss, the the holy kiss or this fellowship, this expression of love that in that setting would have been perfectly appropriate. I've told you this story before. We were in Mexico City a few years ago, and it was hilarious to me to watch the men on our team processing that as the ladies and men would, you know, a man, you know, it it was just the affection in that culture. And and maybe it's a little different in our setting, but the, the concept here is that there's a genuine affection between us. We love to be together. We love to interact with one another. We affirm each other. We're affectionate toward one another. Last night we had uh, Moses and Cindy, Heidi's parents, are celebrating their 50th anniversary. 
they got married when they were nine, I think. So just to <laughs> affirm it, they, were, they actually were 18. So that helps you do the math. Sorry about that, Nana. But anyway, um, 50 years of marriage. And one of the things that happened last night, some of the siblings were there and one of Moses' good friends from Cleveland is they kept tinging the glass. You know what that is at a wedding reception? And, and Nana, after about two or three, is like, okay, that's enough. All right? I love you, but that's enough. And it was hilarious to watch their grandsons like look away. Like, how many want to watch? I mean, watch your grandparents kiss once is enough. And then the guys kept working the glass. It was just funny just to watch that. Affection. If somebody could ting the glass in our lives, is there someone we feel strongly about that's another believer in the appropriate sense? You understand what I'm saying? Is there genuine affection that's just overflowing toward others? We cannot finish with tender hearts on our own. I need you, you need me. We got to be together. We got to be together in an affirming way. That's the only thing that keeps our hearts tender toward one another. Isn't it interesting this book to exiles ends in such a tender way? He doesn't say, get your sword, get your gun, get your whatever. He says, kiss each other. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? We need to love each other, brethren. It's one of the best antidotes to the hardness of heart that creeps into all of us in these days. To love in a tangible, not just in word, but as John says, in deed. All right, and then lastly, notice he says, in the midst of all these challenges, peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. He closes where he began. If you were to go back to chapter 1 and verse 2, he begins with peace. And he ends with that same peace. In a world that is chaotic, there's tranquility, there's peace, there's steadiness that comes through Jesus Christ. As our time of exile grows longer and more intense, do we have more deeper and meaningful Christian fellowships with others, or do we have less? Are, is your group of fellowship growing or is it shrinking as the years go by? That's, that's your move. That's your choice. I can't force you to do that. God's not going to. But you will directly be tender or hard based upon that number and that connection with those that God would have you connect with. All right, let's end. Uh, Luke 22. Would you go there for a moment? Let's end here today. From the life of Peter, which I love that about First Peter, that we can look back to the narrative sections of Scripture to flesh out these principles. Luke 22, let's end here today in verse 31. So we're going to rewind the story as we finish the story or the book today to where it all began between Jesus and Peter, before all of the failures that we alluded to, before him writing, preaching on the day of Pentecost and writing 1 Peter and 2 Peter, before all of that, we find these words in Luke 22 and verse 31. Luke 22, and if you would please, verse Number 31, and Lord said to Simon, said, Simon, Simon, this is Peter, behold, Satan had desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Do you see the tenderness there of Jesus to the man who was going to shortly betray him? And to also, I think Jesus anticipates what's happening right now in this moment. Peter went on to preach on the day of Pentecost. He wrote the book of 1 Peter, and those who initially read it were blessed, but he's still strengthening the brethren today because God changed him, and God grew him through all the suffering and trials and even missteps that we all share with Peter. It's why we connect with him so well. God used this man in a mighty way. In fact, the word strengthened that's found there 
is the same word used for establish in 1 Peter 5 and verse 10. Peter was able to strengthen. He continues to strengthen the brethren because God had worked in his heart. An author said this, and we're done. There's a foolish assumption that this world is the whole show. It is the philosophy of earthbound mortals who don't take eternity into consideration. And he pushed back with this thought, all of this life is but a training for service to come. God cares more for the love of the servant than the length of the service. God cares about your heart, and he cares about where that's going to take you, not just in this life, but eternity. And if you're not tender and you're not soft as an exile, you're going to miss out. That's not to pile on this morning. That's to call you back and to call you into this tender tenacity, this enduring softness toward God that will help us finish well. Are you prepared? Are you yielded through vigilance? Are you prepared not only through vigilance, but number three, through two, through graciousness? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word today.